King is joining us this morning. Uh, he is a local guy. He attends this church in between interim gigs that he has. He is a, a longtime pastor at First Baptist in Minneapolis. Uh, lately has been doing lots of interim stuff for the Free Church. And uh, most recently at, um, in St. Louis Park, helped with some of the transition through that St. Louis Park uh, Free Church was going through. He just celebrated his 50th anniversary with his wife, Marie. Has eight grandkids to, here today, so if you notice some some king-looking king children in the front or king-generational children, uh, that's there joining us today. So uh, please welcome David King. Thank you. Thank you. It frightens me to have eight grandchildren all in one pew. Oh, <laughs> this really is scary, but uh, often at First B when I was there, I would greet the congregation with the words, welcome to our Father's house. And I want to say that to you. Welcome to our Father's house. I've been asked to talk about patience. You'll notice the quote on the screen. It is the duty of the child of God to be patient under their afflictions, whether they be long or short. The words of Thomas Manton, a 17th century Puritan author, he's penned a very helpful commentary on the book of James. That's an old book. And C.S. Lewis said, every time you read a new book, you should read two old books. And by old, he meant over 200 years old. And that's normally not what any of us do. During World War II, there were two voices on British radio that were the most recognizable. One of them was Winston Churchill. The other was C.S. Lewis the two most recognizable voices on British radio during World War II. The, the book Mere Christianity, which resulted in the conversion of Chuck Colson and countless others, is a compilation of some of those radio broadcasts. It uh, clarifies Christian belief, uh, and it's uh, put in book form, and it's worth your attention. I want you to listen to what Lewis had to say in that book, chapter 7, on forgiveness. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive, as we had during the war. And then, to mention the subject at all is to be greeted with howls of anger. It is not that people think this too high and difficult a virtue, it is that they think it hateful and contemptible. That sort of talk makes them sick, they say. And half of you want to ask me, I wonder how you'd feel about forgiving the Gestapo if you were a Pole or a Jew. So do I, writes Lewis. I wonder very much, just as when Christianity tells me I must not deny my religion even to save myself from death by torture, I wonder very much what I should do when it came, comes to the point. I am not trying to tell you in this book what I could do. I can do precious little. I am telling you what Christianity is. I did not invent it. And there, right in the middle of it, I find, forgiveness our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. End quote. Forgiveness is not an option in the Christian life. And neither is patience. Not an option. This morning, as I unpack the biblical teaching about patience with a particular focus on God's patience, 
I want you to think about the people who make you impatient. Just think about them for a moment. Get their name, their faces in your head. Uh, who are these people that make you impatient? And why? And under what circumstances? And what are you going to do about it? Impatience, you see, is a great risk. Uh, in the Old Testament, there was a day when uh, King Saul was reigning. He was Israel's first monarch. You can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, things were hot and heavy on the battlefield against the Philistines. And though they were heavily outnumbered, Saul was ready to go into battle. But the prophet Samuel had not yet arrived to offer the burnt offering that was obligatory before battle began. Uh, people were deserting. Saul was beginning to lose his army. And so he decided he would take it upon himself to make the sacrifice. And he did. And in that moment, Samuel arrived. And I want you to listen, and you can look, it'll be on the screen as well, to Samuel's words. Uh, you have done a foolish thing, Samuel wrote. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. The cost of impatience. Verse 14 goes on, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That would be David. And appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Think about your own life this morning. What does impatience cost you? A $200 speeding ticket, perhaps? We know about things like that, don't we? Perhaps a, a failed job interview. Perhaps a relational breakdown. Uh, there are times when words come to our lips and we wish we could bring them back, but they're gone. They're like chaff on the wind, like feathers from a pillow. And it's all because of impatience. Have you ever come up to the aisle in the supermarket ready to check out, and you check each aisle? Do you know, you know about this? And you try to figure out which aisle is going to go the quickest. It's a combination of things. Is it an experienced checker? Is the woman or man coming through uh, have a basket that's not very full? Um, are, are they moving quickly? Impatience drives us often. Uh, not only there, uh, get off the freeway because the traffic is difficult. Um, and drive on the secondary roads and take twice as long to get home uh, because of impatience. And so it goes. Impatience is a problem we all face. Um, this picture of Saul is one picture of impatience in the Bible. There are others. And a question we all have to deal with this morning is what makes us impatient? In Galatians 5, Paul draws a contrast between the works of the flesh, 15 one-word descriptions of evil, and the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh, we do it, the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit does it. Let's keep that in mind. And there are 15 characteristics of evil, although there are many more. That's not uh, at all exhaustive. And nine characteristics of a Spirit-filled life. 
you, you perhaps remember these. Uh, Pastor Kevin has been talking about these over the last several weeks. The, the fruit, the harvest, the blossoming of the Holy Spirit in our life can be seen by love. That's the first one. And by the way, it's first in all the gifts and lifts of virtues in the Bible. It's always love first. Love, joy, peace, those have been covered. Today, patience, and then, Mike, next week with kindness, and then goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Now, there are three things I want to say about this list. First of all, you can't have one without the others. If you're missing one of these, you are, in effect, missing them all. If you think you have one of these, if you don't have the rest, you don't have it. That's the first point. The second is this. Uh, faith is singular. I'm sorry, fruit is singular. And uh, if you think about it for a moment, it's like a hybrid plant where all the flavors of these nine virtues are all mixed up in a single apple, if you wish. Uh, it, it's, it's all of, of a piece. And uh, as a result, I think of it as... Uh, as the nine facets of a single jewel, perhaps, or perhaps the eight facets of a jewel called love. Some would look at it like that. And finally, keep in mind that this fruit is spirit-centered. Apart from the Holy Spirit, you and I cannot express these qualities. These are the qualities of God. And God expects us, as his followers, to express these qualities. This is the outcome, this is the natural harvest of a life controlled and guided by the Holy Spirit. And I think we can all do a little testing of ourselves this morning. The, the, the old uh, Puritans used to say, uh, everyone should have a talk with themselves each day for at least 15 minutes. So, uh, Think about having a talk with yourself sometime today about whether or not you express these qualities. And if you don't, why not? Well, having given a catalog of evil and a catalog of grace, which, by the way, neither are exhaustive, uh, I want to say this. The fruit of the Spirit is the result of a healthy, rooted state that comes from living in Christ. Uh, read Psalm 1. Remember the tree planted by rivers of living water? Or John 15, where Jesus is the vine and we are the branches and the Father is the gardener who prunes and cultivates and does all the rest. Uh, these fruits or fruit are the normal product of every believer led by or filled with the Holy Spirit. But I've been asked to talk about patience. So with that as background, Ephesians 4.2 says to be patient, bearing with one another in love. Are you doing that? This is the kind of neighbor we're called to be. How are you getting along with your neighbors? I have a friend who lives in Salem, Oregon. He did live there some years ago. I've lost touch with him. And he lived on a piece of property that was... Uh, touched by five other properties. And over the years, he had managed to alienate every one of those five families. He was no longer talking to any of them. And in conversation with him one day, he said, it's all their fault. 
Now, if it were one neighbor, I might take what he said seriously. If it were two, okay, maybe. But five, and it's all their fault, uh, he's missing something. And I'm afraid some of us are like that. Some of us live in neighborhoods or work with people or go to school with people whom we won't even talk to. And God said that's not what we're expected to do. Being a good neighbor involves love and joy and peace and patience. This word patience that we're going to explicate this morning is in the Greek macrothumia. Now think with me for a moment. Uh, Macros means long or big, and thumia means temper. So what we have here is a picture of being long-tempered. Do you ever get angry? Yeah, I do. And uh, do you think it's justified? Uh, What's interesting is the Bible talks about anger not lasting overnight. Don't let the sun go down upon your anger. The Bible also talks about the fact that man's anger, James chapter 1, does not work the righteousness of God. And it seems to me that most of what we would call righteous indignation is our justification for something which is not acceptable by God. I want you to think about that this morning. Being long-tempered is to express or exhibit one of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, this particular word for patience refers to being Patient with people, not things. Years ago, I loaned a a small chainsaw to our music guy at church, and when he brought it back, it was uh, duct taped together. (laughs) And he said, "Uh, I think it is working fine. And uh, I didn't think so, and so we got rid of the chainsaw. But it wasn't a matter of being patient with the chainsaw, it was a matter of being patient with my music guy. You see, this is being patient with people. Now, there is a different word for patience in the New Testament. You find it particularly in the book of Revelation where it's translated patient endurance. And that's something different. We're not going to talk about that this morning. We want to talk about patience with people. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, 15 characteristics of love are mentioned. And the very first one is love is patient. Now, all you have to do is read 1 Corinthians and you discover why love is patient. It's full of difficult people, the church at Corinth. The most gifted and the most dysfunctional church in the New Testament was the church at Corinth. Now, let me ask you a question. Are there any difficult people in this church? Don't look, don't look at them. But are there any difficult... Are you ever difficult? Sure. And so am I. I remember as a freshman at a Christian college, Eugenia Price, a name known to some of you perhaps, uh, spoke to our chapel one day, and Eugenia said, some of you are freshmen, and you will be church tramps this year because you're looking for the perfect church. She said, I want to remind you that the moment you become a part of the perfect church, it will cease to be perfect. That was a helpful admonition, and I put down my roots in a particular church because of that. Uh, Love is patient, even with difficult people. And this patience speaks of having the power to uh, avenge ourselves, to give people a piece of tongue pie, or to beat up on them, or whatever it might be. God has called us to be patient. 
In fact, you take that phrase from 1 Corinthians 13, and instead of translating it, love is patient, translate it, love acts patiently, or if you prefer, God acts patiently through me. And that's probably a better way of looking at the phrase. God wants us to deal with others as he has dealt with us. Instead of resentment and indignation and anger and bitter words, we're called to be patient and and share our lives with those that come across our path. I find it fascinating that in Christian churches, we spend lots of money sending people to mission fields to have missionaries reach folk with the gospel that if they lived across the street from us, we wouldn't have anything to do with. We care about the folks in Africa or Afghanistan or where have you. But do we care about the ethnic minorities that live around us? How do we speak about them? I've heard people say some awful things about Muslims, for example. And I am not defending anything that's happened in the past. I'm only saying that God cares about individuals. And he expects us to express that care in the way we live. When Paul was writing to Pastor Timothy, he wrote him this. In 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. It's a call to a young pastor. When I was a seminarian, I heard this verse more than once in chapel. Very popular as pastors are brought in to speak, they would use this verse. Hardly anybody spent any time talking about great patience. They focused on the other characteristics here. And it seems to me that this is a lesson we need to learn. Remember, Paul had written in 1 Timothy 1, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Keep in mind that humility and wisdom are brother and sister to patience. But for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Do you see? God wants to display his unlimited, his immense, his great patience in his children as an example to others. One of the ways we show that we belong to Jesus is by our patience. God's patience as an expression of his love This is what God is like. Let me illustrate this from the Old Testament. I want to take you to the Old Testament book of Jonah. Now, when you hear the word Jonah, what do you think? Big fish. Okay? That's normally what comes into our mind when we think about Jonah. But as we look at Jonah for just a few moments, I want you to focus not on the big fish, we'll talk about it, but on God. I want you to see God at work in the book of Jonah. Uh, if we read the book and get too focused on the peripheral details like the fish, we're going to miss the point of the book. I want you to look at God patiently working with Jonah. You ever thought about it like that? Listen to the instructions God gives Jonah in Jonah 1. The words of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Jonah, Jonah, think about it. 
This is an opportunity to engage in a great spiritual adventure with God. Do you think about it like that? Well, Jonah didn't think about it like that because verse 3 goes on to say, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. We often, we tell the story, speak about him going to Tarshish, but we leave out the little phrase that he ran away from God. And maybe Jonah forgot that you cannot hide from God. I suspect Jonah was not familiar with the teaching of Psalm 139. Before a word is on my lips, you know it altogether. You cannot hide from God, so on. It's a wonderful, wonderful chapter in the book of Psalms. Uh, Well, we call Jonah the reluctant prophet. God sent him east. Is that east? Which way is east, people? Wait, that way is east. That's what she said. Okay. <laughs> that way's, I thought that way was east. Yeah, he knows. I don't know who knows. Never mind. We'll get a, a compass later, or we'll go outside. Anyway, he went east. I'm sorry, God called him to go east, which was, by the way, 500 miles over land. It was an arduous journey because the town he was being asked to go to was about 100 miles north of modern-day Baghdad. And uh, he said, no, God, I don't think so. And uh, so he took off for Joppa, a seacoast town, and he got on a ship headed for Tarshish, which nobody knows for sure where it is, somewhere in Spain maybe, and, and off he went. Instead of going by land, he went by sea, but he went in the opposite direction. And the question comes up, what instructions has God given to you? And are you listening? I am struck by the fact, and I had not thought about this before, that even in disobedience, God's word changed Jonah's life. Think about it. He said no to God, but his life was utterly transformed. He left his home, and he took off to go hundreds of miles away. God's word has that kind of power, whether we obey it or not. Jonah did not want to be a good neighbor to the people of Nineveh, but God was patient, and as Jonah sailed away, God interdicted Jonah. Look at verse 4. Then God sent a great wind or a gale on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. The master of wind and waves takes the initiative again. Often God sends storms into our lives to get our attention, and it finally got Jonah's attention. Six years ago, our eldest son died of cancer. Greg was not walking with Jesus. And in the course of his sickness, his brother helped Greg come to a place in his life where he was willing to be obedient to Jesus. And three months after the diagnosis, he died. Our son-in-law, who was also a pastor, said to me one day, wouldn't you rather have him for eternity than just for a few more years on this earth? And of course, our answer was, of course. A storm entered his life, which drove him to the feet of Jesus. And storms enter all our lives. And they're there for a purpose, and God can use them for a purpose. He can make even the evil of men to praise him. And for that, we're grateful. 
Cargo was hurled overboard, and then Jonah was hurled overboard. You remember the story. And perhaps you recall that Jonah was thrown overboard at his own request. And, and I want to also emphasize the fact there's no evidence Jonah was ever afraid. Some people say he didn't go to Nineveh because he was afraid, because they were a wicked nation, but he wasn't afraid. Throw me overboard, let me die. It never says he was scared. He did have a reason for not going, but it wasn't that. I, I do notice that the prophet failed in his duty as a prophet of God because he offered neither prayer nor practical help during the storm. They had to wake him up. He was asleep. Another evidence of the fact he wasn't really too shook up about everything. In his patience, God abruptly halted Jonah's westward progress, and, and the storm abated. And Jonah plunged down into the deep. Well, death by drowning was inevitable. Jonah was going to die. He thought that when they threw him in. The sailors thought that when they threw him in. It's all over for Jonah now. And good riddance, he was a pretty useless prophet. He didn't do what God asked. But remarkably, God was not yet done with Jonah. Look at the text. We come to the third step in God's patience. God saves Jonah. Verse 17 of chapter 1. Now the Lord provided a huge fish. God provided instructions. God provided a storm. God provides a fish. Special kind of fish, I might add. To swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Some people look at this and say, well, here's God punishing the prophet. No, 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 no. This is God helping the prophet. The the fish had two purposes. The, The first purpose... Uh, was to rescue Jonah. And the second purpose was to transport Jonah. You know, how was Jonah going to get where he needed to get? He's out in the middle of the ocean. Graciously, God provided rescue and transport. Not what I would have chosen, but it worked. In other words, God provided a lifeguard and a living submarine. Think about it. The split-second timing of such deliverance is evidence of divine providence. God was at work, and despite Jonah's self-will, he has not escaped the presence of the Lord. God's still there. So for three days and three nights, he marinated in the fish's stomach juices. And just to clarify something, some fish don't have stomachs, and some do. And that's all I know about it. So if you know any more about it, you can come tell me. But there was a stomach, and it wasn't like Geppetto in Pinocchio, where he started a fire in the fish's stomach and made the fish cough him up. Well, that was a whale in Geppetto's case. Uh, That's not where we get our information about Jonah. Uh, Well, he's been saved from drowning, but he still has to escape the fish. There's a psalm in the second chapter, a beautiful psalm, and you have to ask yourself the question, did Jonah really mean it? You go back and reread that later. I'm not going to deal with it now. Uh, It's very eloquent. Uh, He prayed this prayer while in the fish. Well, anyway, he ends up back on land. The fish vomited him up, the text says. Wonder how that went. Uh, Oh, and just a point. There is no credible historical occasion when someone was swallowed by a fish and survived. Okay? We've all heard stories about this in Sunday school and other places. Every once in a while, a Christian publication will come out with a story about a man being swallowed by a fish to prove the Jonah story. 
There's no historical evidence that's credible to prove that's ever happened to anybody but Jonah. And uh, so I just, just tuck that in for what it's worth. Well, God's not finished with Jonah. God, in his patience, continues to direct the prophet and must move quickly. God instructs Jonah again in the third chapter. Jonah's offered a new beginning. And so are you. I confess, if I were God, I would have wiped my hands of Job, Jonah. I would have said, come on, I can get somebody else to do this. And besides, you're in no shape after three days in the fish's stomach to do anything for me. But the Bible says in chapter 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. God is very patient. He had a message to get to Nineveh, and he wanted Jonah to deliver it. And that's what happened. Uh, So Jonah went 500 miles overland. And again, did he do this out of love for Nineveh? I'm not sure of that. In fact, I'm almost sure that's not true. And Nineveh repents. God did not punish them. What directions has God given you that you need to listen to? Where has he asked you to go that you've hesitated to go? Jonah went, finally. Uh, What directions concerning your neighbors has God given you multiple times? And remember, a neighbor is anyone God brings across your path. Uh, By the way, it would be a mistake to believe that God always gives people second chances. I believe in the God of the second chance, but I also want to remind you that we don't toy with God. We don't play games with God. We cannot always be sure God will give us a second chance. Oh, you would think the story would end here, but Jonah 4 begins by telling us Jonah was deeply offended and furious. He was torqued because God didn't destroy Nineveh. You see, he came expecting God to destroy. He figured they wouldn't listen to him. He was so upset he prayed God would take his life. And all this, he challenges the character of God. That's what he's doing here. He did not want God's grace and mercy and patience to be shown to Nineveh. But look what God does. God comforts Jonah in Jonah 4.6. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to provide shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Jonah was seated in a barren place outside the city in a funk because God had forgiven the city and withheld destruction. He strongly disapproves of sharing the Lord's compassion with the unlovely. He didn't like that at all. Jonah's out of tune with God, and Jonah continues to need an attitude adjustment. He was angry at the Ninevites' salvation and joyful at his own. He celebrates the mercy born of patience God shows to himself. He criticizes the mercy born of patience God showed to others. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Do we begrudge the patience of God? Jonah had not yet learned the lesson of God's patience. There's a final thought in Jonah, and I'll encapsulate it in the final four verses. But at dawn the next day, this is God correcting Jonah. God provided a worm, a weevil, which chewed the plant so that it withered. 
When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Remember, God had provided a plant and now had been killed. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? His question implies, no, it's not right. It's a rhetorical question on God's part, and Jonah challenges God. He said, it is, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. God, you don't know what you're doing. That's essentially what Jonah's saying. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? Shouldn't I have concern for them? He believes that God is too loving to others, but not to himself, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. I find that an interesting addition. By the way, the right hand from the left, some look at that and say, oh, children. But that would leave us with a population much too large for the day. I take that to be a picture of people who are uninstructed and morally naive. And these people needed what Jonah came to bring. If we are children of the Heavenly Father, His patience must characterize us. It must. No choice. 2 Peter 1 verses 3 and 4 says this, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. All we need to behave patiently. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises. So that through them you may... I pause. I'm about to read what I consider to be the most profound words in the New Testament. This is a sentence that of all the sentences in the New Testament... Grip my heart. You may participate in the divine nature. Peter the theologian is giving us a statement of of amazing proportions. God has come into our lives to enable us to what? Participate in the divine nature. And in participating in the divine nature, to express and exhibit the fruit of the Spirit having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. This passage could be unpacked for an hour or two, but I shan't do it. Someone has said that cheerful patience is a holy skill which one only learns from God. I hope that all of us are willing to be his students. Father, we ask now that your Holy Spirit would uh, touch our lives. Give to us the evidence of your presence and the awareness, both in ourselves and in others, that we are children of the Heavenly Father and participate in the divine nature. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.